Good morning. Uh, hopefully you all have uh, notes that say Josiah the Tender Heart. And uh, if you don't, there's some more in the corner of the table uh, over there. But I want to encourage you to turn, if you would, to um, the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles chapter 34. Second Chronicles chapter 34. And I'm going to... Uh, I actually read several verses, and I hope it will be helpful to kind of frame the consideration that will uh, engage our minds in this morning. So I'm going to read beginning in 2 Chronicles chapter 34, verse 1, down all the way down through verse 28, and then give a bit of explanation as to why we are looking at this. So 2 Chronicles chapter 34, then beginning with the verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images. And they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down. Also the ashram, the carved images, and the molten images he broke in pieces and ground to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. And then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as, as far as Naphtali, in their surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and the, the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah and Messiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. And they came to Hilkiah the high priest and delivered the money that was brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the doorkeepers, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Then they gave it to the the hands of the workmen who had oversight of the house of the Lord and the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord used it to restore and repair the house. Then they in turn gave it to the carpenters and to the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for couplings and to make beams for the houses which the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully, with foremen over them to supervise Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, Zechariah, and Meshulam, of the sons of the Kohathites and the Levites, all who were skillful with musical instruments. Verse 13, they were also over the burden bearers and supervised all the workmen from job to job, and some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. When they were bringing out the money which they had had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. And Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Then, excuse me, Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king saying, everything that was entrusted to your servants they are doing. They have also emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord and have delivered it into the hands of the supervisors and the workmen. Moreover, Shaphan, the scribe, told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Then verse 19, 
And it came about when the king heard the words of the law that he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Hakiakim, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us, because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king told had told went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, the son of Hasra, the, the keeper of the wardrobe, and they spoke to her regarding this. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing evil on this place and on its inhabitants, even all the curses written in the book which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have burned incense to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place, and it shall not be quenched. Verse 26, But to the king of Judah, this is Josiah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, regarding the words which you have heard, Because your heart was tender, and you humbled yourself before God, when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, and wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you will be gathered to your grave in peace, so your eyes shall not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. And let us pray, shall we? Father, we thank you for your pure and precious and, and holy word. I thank you for each one that is here this morning, and, and thank you that we can begin this day by... Um, worshiping you and interacting with Holy Scripture. And I, I pray uh, for the help of your Holy Spirit during these moments together and, and, just, and pray that our, our own hearts would be affected by the example of Josiah. It would be good for our souls and a good preparation even for further worship as we gather together later on this morning. So just bless our time together and, and we commit it to you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I forgot to say thank you to Scott Bills. Thank you for teaching, and appreciate the work that, that he uh, did as we were, were gone. Um, now, my intention is is to uh, move uh, through the through the confession. Probably the next chapter that I will be dealing with is uh, on the providence of God. In in the interim, my, my heart has been drawn to uh, a couple of other directions, and, and the first one is just a very short study this morning concerning Josiah, King Josiah. Uh, I've always been intrigued by pastors and other brothers, and you may have been in churches where. Uh, they will do uh, studies on biblical characters, you know, like studies in the life of Abraham or studies in the life of David or studies in the life of Asa. I have a book, some of you may have it as well, entitled, uh, it's by Alexander White, uh, he's a Scottish divine, um, entitled Biblical Characters, and it's really a, a very good book. Uh, it, he was from 1836 to 1921, and it's kind of a fascinating book on Bible characters, and you can read about Abel and Enoch and Jubal and Noah and so forth, and so it's just fascinating. Um, and I've never really done anything like that, but uh, one of the Old Testament kings that I have uh, been greatly encouraged by is Josiah, and um, he was one of the kings of the southern kingdom. The kingdom was united under Saul and David and Solomon, and then um, it was split up into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Um, 
The northern kingdom lasted about 209 years, 931 to 722 BC, and then it fell to the Assyrians. Uh, the southern kingdom lasted quite long, 345 years, 931 BC to 586 BC, where it fell to the Babylonians. All of the kings of the northern kingdom are presented in a negative light. And you see a repetition of the phrase, like he did evil in the sight of the Lord. Possibly Ahab was the worst of the kings in the north. Now, some of the kings uh, in the southern kingdom are presented in a positive light. Uh, Hezekiah, who reigned from 715 to uh, 686 B.C., his grandson Josiah, uh, reigned from 640 to 609 B.C., so about a 31-year reign for him. And, and both of them are presented in a positive light. And this is in your notes with respect to... Um, Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18.5, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. He clung to the Lord, he did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him, wherever he went he prospered, and he rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. Then a positive commendation of Josiah, 2 Chronicles 34.2, he did right in the sight of the Lord, walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. And then there's another commendation of um, Josiah from here from 2 Kings 23-24. Moreover, Josiah removed the, the mediums and the spiritus and the teraphim and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might confirm the words of the law, which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. And before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Now, the most basic reason, as you can probably tell from your notes, that I want to draw your attention for a few moments to Josiah is the commendation that he receives here in verses 27 and 28. And then the quality that sets him apart is a tender heart. Notice right at the beginning of verse 27, it's in your notes, uh, because your heart was tender, because that was the fact, and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes and wept before me, truly I have heard you, declares the Lord. So that's the particular quality that we want to consider uh, this morning, and it, it set him apart. One of the reasons I think it's important is it sets him apart from the apostasy that was prevalent in the times that he lives in. And you may have noticed there are certain Bible characters that you'll read about, and there'll be one quality that stands out, like with, uh, with, with Caleb, he followed God fully, and we want to do that too. Or, or, or Job, he feared God and turned away from evil, and we want to do that too. And with Josiah, he had a tender heart, and, and you and I want to have a tender heart as well in our, our service for the Lord. Now, verse 28 indicates that because of this, the, the Lord would bring him home in peace. Oh, that's the result of the fact that he had a tender heart. Uh, the peace here does not mean peaceful circumstances because physically he was killed in battle uh, with the Egyptians. It's recorded in chapter 35, verses 20 to 27. So the Lord took him home. The Lord took him home so that he would not have to see the destruction and the exile over the kingdom which which he was ruling. That's the reason the Lord took him home. It, it was not a peaceful death in a physical sense, but he would be at peace with God. Um, and just a, a little bit of an aside here. Josiah's death at the age of 38 is another very good example of the relationship between divine sovereignty and, and human responsibility. Um, Josiah died because he determined to engage in battle with the Egyptians, 
And, um, and the text clearly calls into question, that was not necessarily a wise move on his part. If you, look to, if you turn to chapter 35 and verse 21, chapter 35, verse 21, Necho is the, the king of Egypt. It says, Necho sent messengers to him, that is to Josiah, saying, What have we to do with each other, O king of Judah? I'm not coming against you today, but against the house with which I am at war. And God has ordered me to hurry. Stop for your own sake from interfering with God, who is with me, that he will not destroy you. So we have Necho here, who's the king of Egypt. He sent a warning to Josiah, which Josiah did not heed. And here I have some notes from Matthew Henry. He comments on this, and he says, Josiah was a very good prince, yet he was much to be blamed for his rashness and presumption in going out to war against the king of Egypt without cause or call. It was bad enough, as it appeared in the kings, that he meddled with strife which belonged not to him. But here it looks worse, for it seems the king of Egypt sent ambassadors to him to warn him against this, uh, this enterprise. And then Matthew Henry makes the point that Josiah's actions were, were rash and unwise to, for three different reasons. For principles of justice, he professed that he had no desire. Uh, that is, the king of Egypt professed he had no desire to do him any hurt, and therefore it was unfair against common equity and the law of nations for Josiah to take up arms against him. Even, Matthew Henry says, if even a righteous man engage in an unrighteous cause, let him not expect to prosper. God is no respecter of persons. And then secondly, from principles of religion, God is with me. This is again coming from the king of Egypt. God is with me. He commanded me to take haste, and therefore, if thou retard my motions, thou meddlest with God. It cannot be that the king of Egypt only pretended this, hoping thereby to make Josiah desist, because he knew he had a veneration for the word of God. That is, um, because the king of Egypt knew that Josiah had a veneration for the word of God. For it is said here, verse 22, that the words of Necho were from the mouth of God. We must therefore suppose that either by a dream or by a strong impulse upon his spirit, which he had reason to think was from God, or by Jeremiah or some other prophet, he had ordered him to make war upon the king of Assyria. Then thirdly, uh, from what, what Matthew Henry calls from principles of policy, uh, the King James Version, that he destroy thee not, it is at thy, that is Josiah, it's at thy peril if thou engage against one that has not only a better army and a better cause, but God on his side. So uh, we, we see here, this is a really good example of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, and they don't cancel out one another. Because if we ask, why did Josiah die at such a young age? Uh, on the one hand, uh, it's based on, on the sovereign activity of God and, and a determination to take him home so he wouldn't see the destruction and the exile of the southern kingdom. That's one reason. But, if, but another reason is human responsibility. And in this case, Josiah himself... Uh, made what seems to be really an unwise decision and, and involved himself in, in a battle that really should not have concerned him. So if there would have been the equivalent of a war correspondent on the scene, they, they would have said he died because he was in the battle and would have said nothing at all about God's activity, but we know different. So you have a good combination here, the sovereignty of God, human responsibility. In this case, the human responsibility is Josiah not really making a, a good decision. However, we're not going to talk about that today. Um, that's just kind of an aside, but we'll, we'll move through the rest of this. This pretty quickly. Um, however, we're, we're, we're going to uh, especially consider this, this tender heart and the spiritual quality that he had. That's what you and I want to, to replicate, um, having a tender heart. And he's, he's commended to us for this particular reason. And so two main headings in our, in our time remaining. Uh, number one, some clarity about the meaning of this description, the meaning of, of this 
um, description. I'm drawing here from Richard Sibbs, the Puritan Richard Sibbs. Uh, he has four sermons, and you can find this if you're interested to, to pursue this a bit more, uh, under the greater uh, theme of Josiah's Reformation. Number one is the tender heart, the art of self-humbling, the art of mourning, the saints refreshing, and you, you can find that online if you want. So I'm pulling here especially from his sermon uh, on the tender heart, and he indicates heart is not, by heart is not meant the inward fleshy part of the body, but that spiritual part, the soul and affections thereof, in that it is said to be tender or melting, uh, it is a borrowed and metaphorical phrase. And then he indicates there's three qualities of a tender heart. The first one is a sensitive or sensible. Uh, it, it has life and therefore sense. There's no living creature but hath life and sense to preserve life. So a tender heart is, is sensible of any grievance, for tenderness does presuppose life. And you might remember... When David just cut off a piece of Saul's robe, it bothered him. It bothered his conscience. That's a good example, I think, of a tender heart. It's it's sensitive. Now, then Sibs puts uh, two and three together. And so there's really three qualities of a tender heart. It's sensitive, it's pliable, and it's yielding. And Sibs puts it like this. Um, now that is said to be yielding and pliable, which yields to the touch of anything that is put to it, and doth not stand out as a stone that rebounds back when it is thrown against the wall. You might have seen a kid, you know, he's throwing a, a, a ball against a, a concrete wall at the playground. And it comes back to him um, because the wall is hard and inflexible. And then uh, he goes on to say, so that it is said to be tender, which hath life and sense and is pliable as wax is yielding and pliable to the disposition of him that works it, and it's apt to receive any impression that is applied to it, kind of like wet cement. You can write your name in it or put your hand in it, and it receives the impression. He says, in a tender heart, that there's no resistance, but it yields to every truth and hath a pliableness and a fitness to receive any impression and to execute any performance. A fit temper indeed for a heart wrought by the Spirit. And then two further thoughts under this heading. Number one, uh, to begin with, God has to make it fit. I mean, God has to create this kind of a heart. It's his work. Ezekiel 36, 26, moreover, I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and, and give you a heart of flesh. So, so God has to begin this process and, and, and place the heart of flesh in the soul. And then secondly, a quality of a tender heart is appropriate responses to the character of the word. It's an appropriate response to the character of the word. Sib says, it quakes at threatenings. We're going to say more about this. It obeys precepts. It melts at promises. And the promises sweeten the heart. So it, it responds in a way that is commensurate with the intention of the word. It, it responds to the word depending upon the particular intention of the word at, at various places in scripture. And then Sibs adds this, Hardness of heart is quite the opposite, for as things dead and insensible, it will not yield to the touch, but returns back whatsoever is cast upon it. Such a heart may be broken in pieces, but it will not receive any impression. As a stone may be broken, it will not be pliable, but rebound back again. A hard heart is indeed like wax to the devil, but like a stone to God or goodness." Okay, so that's uh, the, the first heading. Then secondly, 
Uh, what are some of the um, the characteristics of a tender heart? And as, I, as I was preparing, I'm thinking it might be better to say, what are some manifestations of a tender heart? We really looked at some characteristics of a tender heart. So it would be better to, I think, cross that out and say, now we're going to look at, at, at some manifestations of a tender heart. What is it? What does it look like? And using Josiah himself as, a, as an example, there's especially three manifestations of a tender heart. How do I, or how do you, how do you know we have a tender heart? Well, number one, a person whose heart is tender is deeply affected by the threatenings of God's word. There's a lot of threatenings in, in, or warnings in Hebrews. And, and that's a characteristic, or I should say, a manifestation of a tender heart. Um, it's tender and deeply affected by the threatenings of God's word. And, and we see this especially in, in verses 19 to 21 of chapter 34 with Josiah. Notice verse 19, it says, When he heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. That was his response. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Aachim, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me, and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us, because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Uh, in the, the, the quote here from, uh, let's see, the Expositor's Bible Commentary, somewhere I have here, um, it says this, the king's reaction is... Um, the king's reaction regarding of the law was one of immediate contrition, as expressed in the sign of lamentation and grief. And the basis of the grief was twofold. It was Josiah, excuse me, it was Judah's guilt and her judgment. Um, let me just give you, there's a couple of other, other examples of this. Um, a tender heart is affected by the threatening of God. One is our Lord himself. If you turn to Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19 verses 41 to 44 a couple of other examples i think of how a heart that is tender it's affected by the threatenings or the warnings of the word of god it's not the only thing that affects it but it is moved by that and and here are the example of our lord himself verse 41 of chapter 19 of luke when he approached jerusalem he saw the city and wept over it saying if you had known in this day even you the things which make for peace but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. There's some comments on this from uh, Daryl Bach in his commentary on Luke, and this is a very helpful commentary. Also a good weapon. If it's just a massive book, but nevertheless, he has some good, helpful, helpful words here. He says, um, upon seeing the city, Jesus weeps. These are the tears of one who knows that the people have already turned their backs on God's messenger. Much like a parent watching a child making a foolish decision, Jesus mourns a, see, a city sealing its fate. His crying recalls similar reactions by the prophets. Jesus is not indifferent toward the nation. The, the term for tears is strong, referring to full sobbing or wailing. Jesus mourns because Jerusalem has missed the nature of the times, which held the potential for a restoration of peace. In the travel narrative, Jesus constantly warned against the possibility of national failure. This lamentation is like Jeremiah's and shows the combination of pain, anger, and frustration that rejection causes in one who serves God. 
The reference to peace, that is peace with God, summarizes the essential characteristic of the gospel message. The opportunity has come and gone. Peace was hidden from the city. Blindness results from failure to respond and darkness remains. In contrast to peace, destruction comes, as the next two verses make clear. The cost of sin is great. What they had potentially, excuse me, what they had potentially is about to be taken from them. Judgment will result in death and darkness. Like the prophets of old, Jesus finds no joy in rebuking sin and declaring its dire consequences. So he's moved by the reality of what is going to happen to these people because they're not responding to the gospel. And then another example that you're familiar with, if you turn to Romans chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3, Romans chapter 9 verses 1 through 3, this is the Apostle Paul. And in the words, these first three verses of Romans chapter 9 only make sense if there is judgment connected with those who don't repent and come to Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 9 verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So if if the gospel was not a message with eternal implications, if there was not eternal judgment to those who failed fail to repent, this kind of language would not make sense. So uh, the, um, um, the evidence of a tender heart is to be affected by the threatenings and the warnings, deeply affected by the warnings of God's word. That's one. Secondly, a person whose heart is tender will be marked by a deep resolution in serving God, a deep resolution in, in serving God. And here I'm, I'm thinking especially of verse uh, 31 of Second Chronicles chapter 34, um, where it says there, the king stood in his place, this is Josiah, and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the words of the covenant written in this book. Um, you could say that a person with a tender heart is not averse to making fresh resolutions to serve God in one area or another. And I have here a, a couple of other examples where you see this, uh, this deep resolution in serving God. This is an evidence of a tender heart. The first one is uh, Joshua twenty four fourteen. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord, and if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But then he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's, that's the spirit of making a resolution or a determination. Uh, Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 says, Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he, which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Kind of a, a longer example here from Daniel chapter 3 and verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these three men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. 
But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And here comes the resolution part. Even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So a person whose heart and tender, whose heart is tender, will have a, a deep resolution uh, to serve the being of God. And then number, uh, then number three, uh, a person whose heart is is tender toward God will be zealous for the promoting and practice of true religion. Zealous for the promoting and practice of true religion. To put this another way, this doesn't mean everybody's a minister or everybody's an evangelist or everybody's a missionary, but the, there, there really is an interest in the state of the church, and, and we'll rejoice when it's positive and, and we'll grieve when it is not positive. Uh, negatively, you see this, you see this in, in Josiah in two different ways. Negatively, in the thoroughness of, of the persistence of his reforming activity. Uh, the description we have of Josiah, chapter 34 and 35, is one of continual, thoroughgoing reform. You notice in verse 3 uh, of chapter 34, verse 3 of chapter 34, um, in the eighth year of his reign, when he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his fathers. In the twelfth year, he began to notice this purge. Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram, the carved images and molten images. One more verse. Verse 4, they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, the incense altars that were high above them. He chopped down also the ashram, the carved images and the molten images. He broke in pieces, ground to powder, scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. You see the same kind of thing in verse 7. There's a kind of holy violence here. It's kind of like our Lord uh, cleansing the temple that we read about um, in the New Testament. Um, then after this, he makes kind of a fresh revolution, excuse me, not revolution, but resolution uh, in verse 33. And then positively in verse 35, there's the observance of the Passover. And just two verses here, chapter 35, verse 1, Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem. They slaughtered the Passover animals on the 14th day of the first month. And then notice verse 18 of chapter 35, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 18. Uh, there had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the day of Samuel the prophet, nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priests, the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and in the inhabit excuse me, in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So, uh, in in conclusion, uh, the characteristics of, of a tender heart, I, or the manifestation, the evidence of a tender heart is uh, one is deeply affected by the threatenings of the word of God. And secondly, there is a deep resolution, often repetitive resolutions to serve God. And then thirdly, there's a, a, a zeal in the promoting and practice of true religion. There's a rejoicing when positive things are happening. And, there, and there's grief when, when, when the church is worldly and, and those kinds of things. So I just want to close here two helps that are in your notes with maintaining and, and cultivating a tender conscience. These are straight from Richard Sibbs. Number one. If you would preserve tenderness of, excuse me, if you are uh, cultivating a tender heart, if you would preserve tenderness of heart, by all means, take heed of the least sin against conscience. For the least sin in this kind makes way for hardness of heart. Sins that are committed against conscience do darken the understanding, dead the affection, and take away life, so that one hath not the least, the least strength to withstand temptation. 
And then help number two, um, he says again, if thou wilt preserve tenderness of heart, take heed of spiritual drunkenness, that is, um, that thou be not drunk with an immoderate use of the creatures. And I think by that he means the things of this world. Of uh, setting thy love too much upon outward things. Uh, the immoderate use of any earthly things takes away spiritual sense. For the more sensible the soul is of outward things, the less it is of spiritual. When the heart is filled with the pleasures and profits of this life, it is not sensible of any judgment that hangs over the head. As in the old world, they ate and drank, they married and gave in marriage, they bought and sold while the flood came upon them and swept them all away. When a man sets his love on the creature, the very strength of his soul is lost. Talk of religion to a carnal man whose senses are lost with love of earthly things. He hath no ear for that. His sense is quite lost. He hath no relish or savor of anything that is good. Therefore we are bidden to take heed that our hearts be not overcome with drunkenness and the cares of this life. For these will make man to be insensible of spiritual things. And let us pray. Lord, we thank you this morning for the time uh, together. I pray that you would just uh, improve um, this consideration and the application of it to the souls of each one that is here and, and help us uh, by your Holy Spirit to be desirous of having a heart like Josiah that, that is tender uh, towards your pure, precious word, that is hard towards the, uh, the schemes of the devil and the voice of the world, but is uh, pliable and yielding to all of the expression of your will in Holy Scripture. And so help us to, to, to grow in just you know, embracing this and practicing this uh, for your glory in our own lives. And, and Father, as we gather for, together for worship this morning, we pray uh, that you would guide us and you would direct us, that your Holy Spirit would uh, superintend the entirety of the service and we would glory in everything that has been done for us in the person of your Son. So we pray, pray that you would continue to minister your, your grace to our hearts and our souls this day. And thank you for the time together. I thank you for each one that's here. And we commit the rest of this, uh, this day to thee. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.